With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Wednesday, the 13th of October. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix or anything you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com. And use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks. So, England drew last night with Hungary, a rather embarrassing result against a very mediocre team. But... It's interesting that the result has almost been overlooked so that people can now criticise Gareth Southgate for playing a team that many people had called for for ages. Southgate went with Kyle Walker right back, who, considering the injury to Trent and Southgate's aversion to playing Trent, is first choice. Pickford obviously in goal. He is the first choice keeper. John Stones played. He's the first choice. He shouldn't be, but he is. But so there you go. Tyron Mings was the other centre-back. I don't think anybody really wants him in the squad, other than maybe some Aston Villa fans and Gareth Southgate. But Mings played because Maguire's injured. And Luke Shaw at left-back. So you would say that is four of England's back five that would normally play. Maguire in for Mings would be the only change that would happen if Southgate was picking his best 11. In midfield, he went with Phil Foden, Declan Rice and Mason Mount. For ages now, we've heard people complain about Southgate always playing two holding midfielders and demanding that we get to see Foden, Mount and Jack Grealish in the same team. So Southgate did it last night. Foden, Rice and Mount in midfield. Sterling, Kane and Grealish in attack. Sterling is a no-brainer. He's not in great form at the moment, admittedly, but he always turns up for England. Harry Kane is, the, is the, the team captain. And like Sterling, he's not in good form. He's had a dreadful start to the season. But his goal record for England suggests he should play. And this is generally the type of game where Harry Kane would score two goals. It was a very, very flat performance. And a lot of players didn't really seem to know 
what their role was. Some players just didn't perform well on the night. Kane was dreadful. I thought Sterling had a poor game. Didn't think Grealish impacted the game. Mount was poor. Foden struggled to really take control of the game. And Declan Rice was just a little bit too safe. But I would imagine that was largely by instruction. But this is the team, with the exception of Mings, that a lot of England fans have wanted to wanted to see play. And rather than focus their attention on criticising the players or complaining about the result, they've taken this as their opportunity to have a pop at the manager. Now, personally, I think Gareth Southgate is way out of his depth as manager of England, especially considering the amount of talent available to England. And we'll come around to that. But I don't know how you can criticise a manager for doing what you demanded that he do. This is what people wanted to see. Now, hopefully, this gives people a better appreciation for certain other players like Calvin Phillips, who really should be in the team. I saw Gary Lineker complaining that Jack Grealish had been England's best player and said they took him off to bring on Bakayo Saka. Now, you can maybe make an argument that Grealish was the best player in that he might have been the best of a really bad bunch. But England weren't able to break Hungary down. And that's a consistent problem with Jack Grealish, is that when he's the best player on the pitch, there's a ceiling on how good you can be. And you do become quite predictable because he needs the ball constantly. And we saw Foden kind of cede that playmaking responsibility to Jack Grealish. Now, if it's me, I would much rather have the ball at the feet of Phil Foden than Jack Grealish. For me, Jack Grealish shouldn't be starting for England. The team should, in part, be built around Phil Foden. He's that good. He is that special. Mason Mount did not have a good game. He's obviously missed some games recently for Chelsea. Doesn't look 100% fit. But I always I always think he can look out of place for England. He, he, the system doesn't really suit his attributes. I think you can get away with it in, in certain games. But if I look at this England team moving forward, I'm looking at a midfield three of Bellingham Rice and Foden, that's the midfield three that I want if I'm putting together an England team for the long term. I get Rice with his ability to shield the defence, turn the ball over, and play those ball, balls through the lines into feet. That's what Declan Rice is really good at. Winning the ball back and pinging it into that more advanced line in front of him. Winning the ball back, giving it to guys who he re recognises are better footballers than him. That's one of the real strengths of Declan Rice. He understands that his role is specific and he understands that other players on the pitch in the same shirt as him are more talented, more creative and more capable of being match winners. Jude Bellingham is a once every 15 years type of midfielder for England. His power, his ability to drive forward with and without the ball. He's a very good passer. Technically, he's excellent. And I think the balance with him and Rice would be ideal. 
Then you add in Foden, either as an 8 or as a 10 in front of the other two. His creativity, his dribbling, his ability to break the lines on the dribble or with the pass. And his ability to score goals. His movement off the ball, as any Liverpool fan will attest, having watched him run rampant at Anfield a couple of weeks ago, his movement off the ball is second to none. He's such an intelligent player for someone so young. I think the front three, Sterling is a starter, and I like him on the right more than the left. Kane through the middle, obviously. And the left-sided role, for me, you want pace, and you want somebody who'll run in behind. And I think Bakayo Saka might be the best option there. Jaden Sancho's another one, but Sancho does prefer ball to feet. Now, he's more likely to beat a man than Jack Grealish. But I think Bakayo Saka, just for balance right now, Bakayo Saka is, is the one that England should be playing on the left of the front three. I know he plays right of a 4-2-3-1 for Arsenal. I don't care. On the left of a front three is where I think he will be best for England. And I think if England put out that group of players, I think the creativity would be through Foden and Saka. Your goals will come from Kane and Sterling. You'll get the drive and the commitment in midfield from Bellingham and Rice the ability to control games with Bellingham, Rice and Foden. You'll have counter-attacking threats with Sterling, Saka and Foden. And Kane is excellent on a counter-attack because there's very few strikers in the world who are better at taking the ball in, holding it up and then playing it round the corner for a pacier player who's moved past the fullback. In defence... Trent should absolutely be the number one right back. Absolutely be the number one right back. He is by far England's best right back. In the middle, it's Ezra Konza plus one. I would like to see Ezra Konza and Tamore play. Now, I can understand Maguire's aerial ability is, is highly valued, but you can't play a high line with Harry Maguire. And John Stones struggles in a high line as well because his reading of the game isn't the best. His concentration wanes as the game gets into the deeper stages and he can be error-prone. I would love to see Konza and Tamori getting a start together for England. Luke Shaw left back, no problems there. The goalkeeper is a question mark. If Dean Henderson could rediscover the form he showed at Sheffield United, I think he would be number one. I think Nick Pope is worth a, a look as well. Pickford, I can understand. If you're playing a high line, Pickford makes more sense. Pickford doesn't really make sense in this England team who defend the edge of their 18-yard box. Dean Henderson, for me, would be the first-choice keeper. Henderson, Trent, Konza, Tamore, Shaw. Play a high, aggressive back line. Bellingham, Rice, and Foden. There's pretty much everything you want there. You've got... You've even got leadership from Declan Rice. There's nothing that midfield is lacking, in my view. Now, again, as I've said before, I do prefer Calvin Phillips to Declan Rice. But I think the balance might be a bit better with Rice there next to Bellingham and Foden. And then in attack, Sterling, 
Kane and Saka. I don't know that any England fan could honestly look at that team and not be really, really excited by what it could become. Like, just even consider the counter-attacking possibilities of having Trent pick the ball up in the right-back channel and switch the play to Saka 60 yards away and then having Sterling, Foden, Bellingham all busting to get into the box alongside Harry Kane. Even just from a counter-attacking point of view, it's really exciting. England have so much talent at their disposal right now. And I didn't defend Southgate earlier on just to defend him. As I said, I don't think he's a good enough manager for England. I look at Gareth Southgate and I see a guy who was appointed because, number one, he was cheap. And number two, he's a corporate yes man. So he will do exactly what the FA ask him to do. He won't complain. He won't make any outlandish public statements. He won't be overly demanding in the way, say, a Fabio Capello was. They were delighted with Hodgson. Absolutely thrilled with him. The only issue was the football became so bad that it turned the fans off. So they had to make a change. And they brought in Southgate. The football's still not particularly good. There are times England look excellent. And there's times they look really, really bad. But it strikes me that England just aren't getting the most out of what should be potentially one of the greatest eras of English players ever. Consider Dean. Consider that team that I, I went through, and then consider a backup eleven, a second eleven of Nick Pope or Jordan Pickford in goal, Reese James at right back, Ben Chilwell at left back, Joe Gomez and John Stones as the two centre backs, Calvin Phillips as the holding midfielder, Mason Mount in the box-to-box role that Bellingham would play in the senior team. Or maybe James Ward-Prowse with Mason Mount in the more attacking role. And then you've got the likes of Sancho, Watkins, Abraham, Calvert-Lewin, Rashford, Greenwood, Harvey Barnes, all for those attacking spots. There's so much talent. You may be lacking a little bit in midfield in terms of depth. Not Phillips, not Mount, but Ward-Prowse is just a, he's a level below. But the rest of it is, is obscenely good. You've got Conor Gallagher could be an option. James Garner, super talented, super highly rated. Manchester United youngster currently on loan at Nottingham Forest. Jacob Ramsey of Aston Villa. His brother, Aaron, another massive prospect. Carney Chukwameka, another massive prospect. Tommy Doyle of Manchester City. Emile Smith-Rowe. Curtis Jones. Cole Palmer. There's there's plenty of talent coming through. Just at the moment, it's a little bit it's a little bit lacking. 
give it a year or two, and all of those players are going to be pushing for senior international honours as well. The attacking options have never been more plentiful. I didn't even mention Harvey Elliott, Noni Modeki. If Florian Balogun, Joe Gellhart, Eddie Nketi, if Rian Brewster, if he ever gets back on track, if those players develop, that's more attacking options. On top of Kane, Calvert-Lewin, Watkins, Tammy Abraham, Ivan Tony, Patrick Bamford. This is, in my view, having, looking back on the last, say, 13 years, going back to 1990, and looking at every England squad from then to now, I don't think England have ever had a more promising group of players. And that starting eleven I named, Kane is the Kane and Sterling, I think, are the only ones over the age of twenty-six. I think Shaw is the third oldest. Now, I understand people will say Harry Maguire is a very good centre back, and he is. He is. Harry Maguire is a good centre back. I'm not denying he's a good centre back. What I'm suggesting is he's not suited to how England should be playing. That's the issue with Harry Maguire. He's slow. He needs to play in a deep line. And that will not get the best out of your fullbacks, your midfielders, or your attack. You've got to play a high, aggressive line. You just have to. You need to compress the pitch as much as possible. You need to pin that defence back as much as you possibly can. You've got the players to go head-to-head with anybody. Here's some other ones I didn't mention. Morgan Rogers, Tino Angerin, Lewis Bate, Jensen Weir. They're all in the other 20 squad at the moment. It's actually frightening to look back, look at the England... Tino Livramento, didn't even mention him as a potential option at right back down the line. Go, take five minutes out of your day and go and look at the current England squads. Senior, under 21, under 20, under 19. The under 19s. Chuck Wameka, Alfie Devine, super talented. Charlie Patino, Patino, who many people believe is the best young talent to ever come through the Hale End. Arsenal's famed academy, which has produced immense talents. A lot of people think he's the best one to come out of that group. Aaron Ramsey's in that same one, the 19 squad. Cade Gordon of Liverpool. Dane Scarlett of Spurs. Shola Shortire who United fans assure me is sensational. The under-18 squad as well. Zach Emerson of Brighton. Huge, huge talent. Go and look through the England squads. All the way down. And it's just talent after talent after talent after talent. England have never, ever had this level. Never. From under 17 up, all the squads are just stacked 
with huge prospects. There's no reason England should ever go into a game feeling like they're underdogs because they're just not. And Southgate's problem is that he's an underdog. He's the little engine that could. He was a good player, never a great player, but he maximised his ability. He had a better career than he probably should have in terms of England caps and, and, and such. But he overachieved. He's overachieving massively as a manager purely by having the England job. He's not a particularly good manager. And his CV before getting into the England setup was really poor. I know he did well with the 21s. Lots of people have done well managing underage teams. Lots of them. The step up to senior level is something very, very different. And it's Southgate's mentality, which was, was also Hodgson's mentality, that holds England back. Now, Hodgson at least had the excuse he didn't have this level of talent. I didn't even mention Callum Hudson-Odoi earlier on. I mean, he's a sensational winger. He's lost his way a little bit, admittedly. But there's just endless, Eberichi Ezi, there's endless, endless talent available to England. Unlike anything we've ever seen, there's three and four, Ryan Sessegnon, Lost his way a little bit. Still a huge talent. He'll get a move from Spurs maybe in January on a loan. And I expect we'll see more of, of what he can do. He's the best player in the championship at 16. In the championship at 16. He could be an option at left back. We always hear about all the right back options. Trent, Reese, Kyle Walker, Kieran Trippier. Max Ahrens, Tariq Lamptey. James Justin, an option of both fullback spots. But left back is, is strong as well. Shaw, Chilwell. Brandon Williams, I, I think, is really, really good. Cessnion can be an option there. Justin, like I say, can play both sides. So he's an option there. There's just so much talent. At centre-back as well, you've got Ben Godfrey. There's so much talent available to England. Actually, Ben Godfrey and Joe Gomez would be my backup pair behind Kanz and Tamori. But there's no excuse for England anymore. They lost the, the European Championship final because they went in thinking were the underdog here. And when they went 1-0 up, they didn't know how to behave. So they sat deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. There's not one position you can look at for England, bar goalkeeper, and not see at least two to three either top-class players or elite-level prospects. Not one. And they include both centre-backs as separate positions, right side and left side. Kanz is one of the five best centre-backs in the league. Godfrey's excellent. Tamori is one of the five best centre-backs in Serie A. Joe Gomez is excellent. Stones is good. Maguire is good. Chalaba, who's come through at Chelsea this year after a bunch of loans, he's good. 
Midfield is the same. Attack is, is endless options. Endless options. England need a more positive mindset. Last night, I mean, that's just embarrassing to draw 1-1 with Hungary at home. Hungary aren't a dreadful team by any stretch. They're not a good team. They're not a team England should be concerned about. You look at that, England, that, that Hungarian national team, and Dominic is probably the only player in that group capable of playing for a top, top club and being a standout player. England have a squad of them. Last night was largely about players that people think should be in the England squad because they you know, do a certain thing in the Premier League. It's just not the case. England need to build a team, not a group of individuals. They need to have a more positive mentality, and that starts with Southgate. And last night wasn't Southgate's fault. Southgate picked the team people had wanted him to pick. It just showed that a lot of people don't really know how to construct a team, how to bring balance to a group. Like, you play Jack Grealish, you might as well not play Phil Foden. They don't work well together. They're both ball dominant. It's the reason Grealish hasn't performed yet for City. There's too many ball dominant players in the team. De Bruyne, Bernardo, Foden, Mares when he plays. He's done well in the wide open games against your Norwich, your Arsenal, and RB Leipzig. But those are easy games to play in. In tight games like last night, it shows you the issue with Jack Grealish. Why maybe, if you're going to have him in your England squad, the best option is to bring him off the bench. But the problem is, he really needs a team built around him. That's the issue with Grealish. He needs the team built around him. And he's not good enough to warrant having the team built around him. You would hope that Southgate will get braver in his squad selection, not pick players based on reputation, which is something he is guilty of, and start to look at players who warrant selection more. Now, I say that having said that Kane and Sterling should start, but that's also based on performance. At the international level. Both of them have proven what they could do. Raheem Sterling was England's best player at the Euros. He carried them at the Euros. Kane is a flat track bully through qualifiers. This is just what he is. And you back him to get goals in tournaments. He doesn't always do it. But he did it at the Euros. He's in the right place at the right time. And if the penalties and happens, the penalties and happens. We shouldn't fawn over him for his performances in international tournaments, but he can get goals there. Southgate is an issue, but last night wasn't his fault. Uh, to run through the rest of the games from last night, Finland beat Kazakhstan 2-0, two goals from Timo Puki, uh, who is now the all-time leading scorer for Finland. Uh, he beat, broke Yari Datmanen's long-held record. Um, Puki has 33 goals in 98 games. And I said this yesterday, Finland very quietly have put together a decent team 
there's no star names. There's no one that jumps off the page at you. Lucas Rodecki is probably the best player in the team. Glenn Kamara is a good player. But they're just a team. They work really, really hard for each other. And they play for the manager. And they've got a positive attitude. Uh, Portugal beat Luxembourg 5-0. Cristiano Ronaldo with a hat-trick. Um, two penalties and a header. Obviously, there's you know, mass fawning. It's his 10th hat-trick, I think, at, at international level. Uh, 115 international goals now. Um, I assume we're, we're all meant to worship at his feet. Um, Bruno Fernandes and Paulinha with the other goals as Portugal wallop a very, very, very poor Luxembourg team. Uh, Serbia 3, Azerbaijan 1, Dusan Vlahovic with 2, and Dusan Tadic with the 3rd. Mamadov scored the only goal for Azerbaijan. Georgia beat Kosovo 2-1. Two lads whose names I will not attempt to pronounce. And Mariki with the goal for Kosovo. Sweden beat Greece 2-0. Uh, Forsberg and Alexander Isak with the goals. Sweden Sweden are very, very good going forward. And if they ever figure out how to play football in the middle of the park, keep an eye on them. Because defensively, they're, they're very, very strong. It's funny. The Victor Lindelof who plays for Sweden is a very different player to the one that plays for Manchester United. As is the Emil Kraft, who plays for Sweden rather than the one that plays for Newcastle. It's almost as if playing in a system that suits you can benefit you as a footballer. It's a mad concept. Mad concept. Like, Emil Kraft is not asked to be the only outlet down the right-hand side for Sweden. So he can play within himself and he knows what he's doing. Victor Lindelof is not asked to carry an enormous weight up and down the field who's just got no pace. So, he's fine. Bulgaria 2, Northern Ireland 1. Northern Ireland would be disappointed with this one. Washington put them 1-0 up. Nedelev scored 2 to give the home side the victory. Uh, Switzerland beat Lithuania 4-0. 2 from Breland Bolo. Stefan and Gavranovic with the others. A uh, comfortable win for the Swiss. Ukraine and Bosnia-Herzegovina played out a 1-1 draw. Yarmolenko scored the Ukrainian goal. Ahmed Hodzic uh, scored for um, Bosnia-Herzegovina. That is the young centre-back. I think he's still with Malmo. Uh, let me just check. I think he's still with Malmo. He's been heavily linked to a number of clubs. Yeah, still with Malmo. Really, really promising. Was actually at Nottingham Forest for a few years. So if any Premier League club wants to sign him, um, he actually does count as a homegrown player. So uh, he, I think he's one Premier League clubs should be keeping an, keeping an eye on. He was linked to, I want to say Atalanta in the summer. I could be wrong. I think it was Atalanta. Very, very promising. Very, very talented. Uh, Denmark continued their perfect run and made themselves the second European team to qualify for the World Cup. Joachim Mal giving them a 1-0 win over Austria. 
played eight, won eight, 27 goals scored, none conceded. Really impressive. Uh, Israel 2, Moldova 1, Zahivi and Dubur with the goals. Um, Nicolescu with the Moldovan consolation in stoppage time. Poland beat Albania 1-0. Swiderski with the goal. This game was marred by the Albanian fans deciding to shower the Polish players in bottles. Uh, To put it nicely, shameful scenes. Absolutely shameful scenes by the Albanian fans. The game had to be suspended for about 20 minutes. Uh, You would hope for better. So, uh, Serbia are top of Group A. Portugal are second. Portugal do have a game in hand. They've got two games left. Serbia have won. Uh, Those two will qualify. It just remains to be seen who will qualify as group winner and who will head for the playoff. Sweden are top of Group B with Spain in second. Those are the two who will qualify again. We don't know how. They've both played six, so both have two games left. Italy and Switzerland are joint top of Group C with 14 points. Italy have the better goal difference. Those are the two who will represent Group C. From Group D, we will have two from France, Ukraine, Finland, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, France are top 12 points, then Ukraine on 9, Finland on 8, Bosnia-Herzegovina on 7. Ukraine have played one game more. They've played seven games. The others have all played six. I think you would have to fancy Finland, as things currently stand, to be the team who gets through with France. France should top that group. They've also only played six. Uh, Belgium are top of Group E. Well clear of the Czech Republic and Wales. Belgium will top that group and it'll be between Wales and Czech Republic to get through to the qualifier. Uh, Wales have played a game less. The two teams have the same amount of points. Denmark are through. Absolutely perfect record. Scotland currently sits second and they're competing with Israel for second spot. They should get through. They're four points clear of Israel. Uh, so you'd imagine with two games left, they'll be able to do enough to get themselves through at least to the qualifying stage. Denmark will qualify automatically and deserve to. An absolutely incredible, incredible campaign that they've put together. In Group G, the Netherlands are top and Norway and Turkey sit second and third. Netherlands should qualify as group winners. They've all got two games left. Netherlands have a two-point advantage and a much better goal difference. Netherlands and Norway look like the safe bets there. Russia are top of Group H with Croatia in second. Those two will go through. It just depends on the order. Uh, Slovakia, unfortunately, will miss out. Two games left in that group as well. In Group I, England are top. 20 points from their eight games. Poland are second on 17. Albania are third on 15. Uh, They can still qualify. So it is between Poland and Albania to finish uh, second to England. England should should get through one more win. We'll put England through automatically. Uh, The Hungarians were um, eliminated last night after failing to win against England. And then Germany top group J, Romania and North Macedonia and Armenia are fighting it out for second spot. It would be 
incredible to see Armenia qualify. I don't really have any preference of the three. But, you know, we've seen Romania in multiple major international tournaments. North Macedonia qualified for the Euros, so they had their moment. And it would be just, it would be great to see Armenia get through. Now, Romania have 13 points, North Macedonia and Armenia both have 12. They both have two games left. So they have an opportunity to qualify for the playoff. Um, it's not a an Armenian team packed with stars. Mekaterian is their biggest ever star. It'd just be great to see a new team at, a, at an international tournament. That's basically it. But the issue is, even getting to the qualifiers, the, the playoff round, you're going to be facing top teams. They're just... There's so many good teams ready to go in the uh, in the qualifiers. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to have a, just a quick talk about players being underappreciated and somehow dismissed over weird media narratives with a focus on one player in particular. I'll see you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, obviously, spent most of the first half of the show rambling about England. And when you look at the England squad, there's, there's issues, obviously. We went through a lot of them there. But when you look at the best English players, it, it really... I find it really weird that... When people talk about the best English players, that Trent Alexander-Arnold isn't just an automatic mention. I saw multiple comments on social media yesterday that really I, I just found weird. So the first one was somebody saying, is it time to have the conversation about Kyle Walker being the best right back in the history of the Premier League? And he said, Gary Neville is normally just given that mantle. And I thought, by who? Who is it that looks at Gary Neville and thinks he's the best right-back the Premier League has ever seen? This goes back to what I talked about the other day, CV over performance. Gary Neville's won the most of any right-back in Premier League history, but by no means is he the best right-back the Premier League has seen. Walker is the better player than Gary Neville. Neither of them are the best right-back the Premier League has seen. Kyle Walker is not even the best right-back Manchester City has seen in the Premier League. Because Zabaleta was better than him. I think you look at the Chelsea two. Ivanovic and Aspilicueta. For me, they're the two that would go to the top of the conversation. Zabaleta behind them, and then maybe it's Walker. But if we're talking about the best player who's played right back in the Premier League, 
How is it not Trent Alexander-Arnold? Just explain to me how it's not this immensely gifted 23-year-old, who's just turned 23, by the way, who is revolutionising that position and has done for the last three years. You could say the last four years, from 17, 18 through to now. Trent has been sensational. By the end of the 18-19 season, he was the second best right back in the game. Not the Premier League. The entire world. The only one better than him is Joshua Kimmich, who now plays in midfield. When you look at right backs around the world, the only one who really comes close to Trent is Ashraf Hakimi, who's not really a right back, he's a right wing back. And isn't all that comfortable at right back. But he, like Trent, is a player you can basically run your attack through. Different type, obviously, far more a ball carrier than a passer like Trent. Different profile of player. More of an overlapper. Trent tends to underlap a bit more, come into central areas, act as a playmaker. Hakimi's an outlet. What Hakimi is, is a really fancy version of Andy Robertson, but on the right-hand side. He's an outlet. He's someone that has that incredible pace, great power, good dribbler, can beat a man, and can create chances through his crosses and his cutbacks. Trent steps into midfield, dictates the play, pings passes here and there, unlocks defences with his brain and his passing ability. The only right back who's ever done what Trent does is Javier Zanetti. Now, people will say, but what about Danny Alves? Danny Alves was amazing. Amazing. And his assist numbers were ridiculous. But how many of his assists were simple five-yard balls to Lionel Messi? I would argue, I would estimate, probably 30%, 40%. Like, you get a massive advantage when you play behind Lionel Messi. Trent has a huge advantage playing behind Mo Salah, there's no question. But it's rare that you see Trent have one of those get-it-give-it step away kind of assists most of his assists come from a great cross or a great pass he's an elite chance creator an elite level playmaker at right back and the last time we saw that was Zanetti because with Alves as well Alves played high and wide Trent plays deeper and more central Trent comes into midfield, and the right-sided midfielder, be it Jordan Henderson, Harvey Elliott, whoever, they go high and wide. They go and fill that right-wing spot. Danny Danny Alves was a a right-winger who got converted, and he retained that right-wing instinct. Zanetti was a primary playmaker for Inter Milan that teams used to have to scheme to stop. We saw... Many top class, me, top class teams, including Manchester United, play two left backs 
down that side just to stop him. They man-marked a right back. No one ever set out to man-mark Dani Alves because he wasn't the primary source of creation for Barcelona. You had Xavi, you had Iniesta, you had Messi. Alves was great, no question. And I'm not saying Trent is a better player than he was. But Trent is different than him. Trent does more as a right back. Alves was a right winger playing at left back, playing at right back. And when he was in that great Barcelona team, he didn't really play right back because Abidal played left back and PK and Puyol would shift over. Abidal would join them and they'd form a back three. Busquets would sit in front of them. Alves would push on high on the right. Pedro would come out and play high, the, high on the left. Iniesta and Xavi were in the middle. And then Messi would float with David Villa as the nine. But Danny Alves played as a glorified right winger in that team. What Trent does is really, really unique. And he's doing it at a level on the ball unlike anything we've seen. He's better on the ball than Zanetti was. And I say that as maybe the biggest Javier Zanetti fan you'll find. Like, if I'm picking my all-time world eleven, Javier Zanetti is my right-back. I have him over Alves. I have him over Cafu. I have him over anybody you can name. I have Javier Zanetti as my right-back in my all-time eleven. Trent is better going forward on the ball than Zanetti was. He doesn't yet have Zanetti's leadership. He doesn't have his defensive nous. But that's not to say he's a bad defender. There's a media-driven myth that Trent is a poor defender. We hear people say, oh, well, the reason Southgate picks Kyle Walker is because he's better defensively. But is he? Is he better defensively or is he quicker? Because the Kyle Walker I watch makes a lot of mistakes defensively, but has insane recovery speed. Like, Kyle Walker might still be top three quickest players in the Premier League, along with Adama Traore. And you'd have to sit and think, maybe Sadio Mane. And he's probably quicker than Mane. It may just be Adama Traore and him. I'd love to see him. I'd love to see... Does anyone remember this? Years ago, there was a a competition run, I think by ITV, where they got the fastest player from each club and they basically put them in a 100-meter sprint type of situation. It might have been like 60 meters or whatever. I don't remember who won. I just remember it being on. I remember it being a thing. I'd love to see them do something like that. Get the quickest player from every club, line them up in... Four heats of five runners. Top two go through in in each. And then you've got a final of, of eight. I'd love to see that. Anyway, that's beside the point. Kyle Walker has incredible recovery speed, which allows him to make up for not only his own errors, but the errors of his centre-back. Trent doesn't have that level of pace. He's not slow, not by any, not by any means. Trent is quick. He's just not lightning fast. But what is it about Trent that makes him a bad defender? Like, 
he's got decent positioning. He times his tackles well. He doesn't get dribbled past very often. He blocks a lot of crosses. He sweeps his centre-back quite well. Now, you can argue that, well, he's out of position a lot, but he's not really. His job in the team is to be the primary playmaker. And what that means is that somebody else is meant to fill in at right back when he's doing those things, or somebody else is meant to be in position to get back and help at right back. Trent's issue is not that he's a bad defender. It's that he's got bad defensive players in front of him. Jordan Henderson is not a good defensive player at all. And Harvey Elliott, defending, Harvey Elliott doesn't know what that is. Harvey Elliott knows you give him the ball and he's going to make something happen. In time, he will realise, oh, there's another side to this. And actually, to be fair to him, against both Burnley and Leeds, he did show a willingness to do the defensive side of things. Far more so than his club captain has done. Trent's issue isn't that he's a bad defender, so he's frequently left in 2v1 defensive situations where he's having to deal with both the opposition wide player and the left back bombing forward because Salah can do great things defensively. He doesn't do them frequently. He switches off or he's just not in a position to get back. If he is in a position, he will he will give absolutely everything to get back into place. If he's not, he just can't do it. He's asked to play very central in this Liverpool team. So he's just not in position at times. That then falls on Jordan Henderson, who just doesn't do it. Doesn't track runners, can be very lazy in his defensive work. Will do the first phase of something and then get attracted to the ball or just switch off and let someone run off his shoulder. And there we find Trent in 2v1 situations. Now, the one clip, I, I mentioned this when I was talking about Vidic and, and, and Torres, the clips that always go round. The one clip that always goes round about Trent's defence is Marcus Rashford at Old Trafford. Now, if we go back and watch those goals, the reason Marcus Rashford gets to isolate on Trent in those situations is because Dejan the Pebble Lovren goes and attacks balls that he cannot win. And Romelu Lukaku makes a show of him. And Rashford gets the ball 1v1 against Trent in a lot of space. Now, you can say what you want about Marcus Rashford, and I'm going to come on to him in a minute as well. He's really good 1v1. Like, really, really good 1v1. So for him to beat Trent 1v1 is not a damnation of Trent. It's because Rashford's really good in that situation. Really good. There's not evidence that shows that Trent is a bad defender. There's evidence that shows that at times maybe he's a lax defender, but he's not a bad defender. He's not a great defender, but he's above average. He's above average as a defender at right back. If you watch him regularly and don't buy in to nonsensical media narratives like those put forward by Gary Neville, you will realise Trent is not a bad defender. 
And people say, oh, well, Gary Neville played right back. You know, Gary Neville doesn't know anything about playing right back the way Trent plays right back. Because Gary Neville's job was you stand there and if anyone comes your way, kick them into the stand. That was Gary Neville's job. No attack was running through Gary Neville. The position Trent plays is completely different to the position that Gary Neville played. Regardless of the fact that they're both called right back. They're just completely different different roles in a team. When I see Trent disparaged by England fans, I find it weird. Why would you not want your country to be at their very best? Like, for example, Ireland were terrible for years. Okay, we had a couple of good players and a lot of dreck. I didn't care who the dreck, who who the good players played for. As long as they were playing for Ireland, I was thrilled. Thrilled. I grew up hating Manchester United. Hating them. No reason to hide it at all. You grow up as a Liverpool fan, that's what you do. Everyone listening to this understands what I mean. If you grow up as a fan of one club, you are also growing up hating at least one other club. Everton weren't relevant enough for me to hate them. I'm not from the city, so I don't have that. So United were the team. The biggest rival, they were obviously the team winning things. I couldn't stand Manchester United. But you best believe that every time the Ireland squad was named, every time Ireland took the field, the first player I wanted to see was Roy Keane. You should always want your national team having their best players in the team, regardless of club allegiances. So how it is that anybody could not want Trent in the England team, I just don't know. And Chelsea fans have this weird thing of wanting to overrate Rhys James. And Rhys James is a good player. But he's not Trent. He's not a better defender than Trent, regardless of what people want to pretend. He's quicker, he's more physical, but Trent reads the game better, has a better positional sense, covers the centre-back better. Trent blocks more crosses. Rhys James is good going forward, but he's a he's a ones and twos kind of right back. He's a good overlapper, a good crosser. He is a good passer, and I actually do think he could play in midfield, but he's not as good as Trent. On the ball, not not nearly as good. Doesn't have his passing range. Doesn't have his vision. He's not as good a crosser. Doesn't have his range of crossing and passing and the variety. Reese James is not Trent. You can love Reese James when he plays for Chelsea, but you should also admit that he's not as good as Trent. And when it comes time to pick the England team, Trent should be the right back, and James should be the backup. City fans the same. You can love Kyle Walker, but there's no argument you can make that he's better than Trent or that England will be better off with him in the team than they would be with Trent. There's just no argument made at all. And I saw someone else say, would it be fair to say, or what do you say? Oh, is, is it too diplomatic to suggest that Kyle Walker's perfect for City, Reese James is perfect for 
Chelsea and Trent is perfect for Liverpool. Let's look. Jurgen Klopp changed his system because of the talent of Trent Alexander-Arnold. Jurgen Klopp, one of the three or four best managers in the world, did that. I will guarantee you here and now, if Trent Alexander-Arnold said, tomorrow, I want to leave Liverpool, the first two phone calls Liverpool would receive would be from Manchester City and Chelsea. Pep Guardiola would tie ribbons around Kyle Walker and hand-deliver him to Newcastle to get the money to buy Trent. Thomas Tuchel doesn't even pick Reese James every week. So how is he perfect for the system? He plays him at centre-back because he doesn't like him at wing-back all the time. He plays Aspilicueta there. He plays Hudson-Odoi there. So no, it's not diplomatic. It's nonsensical. Trent is England's best right-back. He's the best right-back in the world. He's also one of the three best English footballers. Harry Kane is one. Sterling is two. And Trent is three. And it's not just about Trent not being respected enough by... Maybe it's because he plays for Liverpool and there's always a little bit of an extra dislike. Maybe that's what it is. I don't understand it. But I look at Marcus Rashford and I see how disrespected he is, even at times by his own fan base. I think he's disrespected. Marcus Rashford's a phenomenal football player. And yet, somehow, certain people have twisted things around on him. Last year, he played most of the season through injury. So you best believe at the end of the season, he was struggling. The guy had to go and have surgery because he was playing through an injury. So, of course, he was struggling. Of course, he didn't do much at the Euros. He was injured. He missed a penalty. Not his fault. He shouldn't have been on the pitch at all. Same goes for Sancho. Point the finger at the guys that hid. Not the guys that stepped up. And when you've got a young man like Marcus Rashford, who, number one, is a phenomenally good football player, and number two, is an incredible human being, you should embrace that. Lean into it. Don't push it away. Don't try and break it down. Lift that man up every single time for club and country. Every Manchester United fan should be so proud to have Marcus, Marcus Rashford at their club. Every person from Manchester should be proud to have one of their own doing the things he does. Every English person should be proud that a kid from Manchester did more to help starving children during a pandemic than your entire government. You can dislike the football team he plays for. You can dislike him as a footballer. You can't deny his talent. You just can't. 
You look like a fool. He's an outstanding football player. He's managed by a PE teacher. Before that, he was managed by Jose Mourinho, who has been pioneering anti-football for years now. Put Marcus Rashford in a team with a real manager, and I guarantee you will be stunned at the results. Same goes for Greenwood, who was never going to be able to keep up the incredible start to his career that he had. Doesn't make him a bad player. Yes, Mason Mount is a manager's favourite for Lampard and Southgate. Yes, he plays too often for England and he doesn't necessarily deserve a place in the starting eleven. He 100% deserves a place in the squad. He's really, really good. He's not Foden's level. He just isn't. He's not Foden's level. He's not the next Lampard. He's not better than Gerrard. But he's really, really good. And he absolutely deserves to be in the England squad. And so much of this tribalistic nonsense where people feel the need to drag down players because they play for a different club or they have a favourite at their own club who's clearly not as good but competes with that player in a certain position. It just needs to stop. It really does need to stop. Why is it that we can't just appreciate how good some of these players are? Did people not watch England for years? Dreck. Utter dreck. Mediocrity. Bad players getting lots of England caps. Now there's all these incredible young men. And it's not just them as players. It's what they are as human beings. How socially conscious they are. How much work they do in their communities. Hold them up. Stop tearing them down. Very quickly, we may soon be holding a funeral on this podcast for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's uh, tenure as Manchester United manager. Raphael Varane ruled out for several weeks. United's next 10 fixtures, away to Leicester, away to Atalanta, away to Liverpool. Sorry, I'm wrong. Away to Leicester, home to Atalanta, home to Liverpool, away to Spurs, away to Atalanta, home to City, away to Watford, away to Villarreal, away to Chelsea, home for Arsenal. There are two games in that run that I would expect United to win without Varane, and no Maguire either, remember. Now, it's not like they're playing paupers. They've got Bailly and Lindelof, who... In 2017, United fans assured me were the best centre-back pairing in the league. Fact. Both of them cost about £30 There's no excuses. But I don't expect United to pick up a whole bunch of points over these next games. Now, knowing Oli, the way he operates, they'll likely beat a couple of these teams because he'll play some anti-football, he'll bed in hit teams on the counter-attack, and it'll be ugly as sin, but they'll get results. But if it goes badly, we may soon be hosting a funeral. We will wrap up with the gossip. Erling Haaland's agent is expected to hold talks at Manchester City in January about a potential summer move for the Norwegian striker. Um, 
Oh, makes makes sense. Makes sense. England forward Raheem Sterling wants to be sure he remains a key part of Pep's plans before he resumes contract talks. I think the fact that you don't start every big game uh, makes it clear that you're not really a key part. Liverpool are willing to sell Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. You think? Liverpool have started negotiations to sign Usman Dembele. Bet they haven't. Phil Foden is close to signing a new contract at Manchester City. His current deal expires in 2024. Sign him for a 10-year deal. Give him whatever he wants. Give him escalators. Give him wage matching. Give him whatever he needs. Make sure you keep him, City, because he is special. Paul Pogba is back on Real Madrid's radar. He never left it. Manchester United have joined Chelsea and Juventus in the race for Oriel and Chimeni. This just gets recycled every day. Um, Italy winger, winger Federico Chiesa and Netherlands centre-forward Matthias De Ligt, who both play at Juventus, are among Newcastle's list of transfer targets. Yeah, of course they are. Uh, Barcelona defender Clement Lengley could be the first arrival. He would be a good signing for Newcastle. They've been linked with Tarkovsky. I think Tarkovsky and Lengley together as a pair would work really well and could be a really good base for starting the rebuild at Newcastle. Uh, Southampton players are expecting Ralph Hasenhutl to be sacked in the coming weeks. This is from Wayne Vesey, the football insider, who's about as inside football as a cow is inside in a field. Germany central defender Antonio Rudiger will assess his options. He's just trying to rinse as much money as he can based on one good season in the back three. Southampton, Tottenham and West Ham are interested in Sam Johnston. Um, I can understand Southampton. He's not good enough for Spurs and West Ham already have a better goalkeeper in Alphonse Areola. AC Milan midfielder Frank Kessie's agent has denied speaking to Inter Milan about the midfielders out of contract. Speak to everybody, just don't do it till January. Spanish right-back Hector Bellerin has hinted he has no intention of returning to Arsenal. He has been looking to get out of there for years. Leeds are close to signing 17-year-old Spaniard Mateo Joseph Fernandez uh, from Espanyol. Espanyol want a million. Leeds have offered 450000 so they're not so much close to signing him. They're a mile apart on the transfer fee. Like That's the equivalent of, of let's just say, City bidding £50 million for Jack Grealish and Villa saying, but you know he's got a £100 million buyout. They're miles apart. Miles and miles apart. Real Madrid are keen to bring Spanish fullback Sergio Regulon back to the Bernabeu. I doubt it. But maybe. I could understand if they did. But for him, I wouldn't go back. Um, and even though they have a buyback and first option and whatever else, I still think he can decline the move if he wants to. Whether he wants to or not, I don't know. We will leave it there for today, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, myself and Mr. Drinkle are filling in for uh, to deal with this week. So we will be doing a tad predictable, which will be out later this evening. So now that you've finished listening to me ramble for an hour, give that one a listen. Um, it's It'll be another hour of me rambling and Guy laughing at me as I get predictions wrong. Um, until tomorrow, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.